You're listening to the Saddle Hunter Podcast, the leanest, greenest, meanest, in-betweenest, most deer-killingest savages in the podcast diverse. Now, here are your hosts, Greg and Scott. What's going on, Saddle Hunters? Greg and Scott here with another episode of the Saddle Hunter Podcast. This is actually the last episode in our first season since we are aligning our seasons, quote unquote, with uh, hunting seasons. We're going to start season two of the Saddle Hunter Podcast in September. So, Scott, how in the world are you, man? I'm awesome. I uh, can't wait for September. Can you believe that we have already done a complete season of the podcast? No, I can't. I can't believe that we've been putting up with each other doing this for almost a year now. It's kind of crazy. I mean, this is episode number 11, and uh, it's been a lot of fun, and we've learned how to make a podcast. Who knew? Yeah. I. Uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and season two should be even better. Oh yeah, we've got some awesome guests lined up for season two and some stuff that you guys are going to really like and we're going to work a lot of people from uh, a lot of expert saddle hunters in from the forum and it's going to be fun. I can't wait to start talking deer hunting and I can't wait to uh, get into deer hunting since my season opens right around the corner. Yep, I believe uh, at the moment 22 days till my season so I am really, really getting that itch. Nice. Yeah, mine opens up September 15th, so I'm about a month away. Yeah, so uh, the only thing, I mean, you're in Georgia, so you're probably sweating your buns off, but it's it has been hot and humid up here. Like, it's, I've been out working on some of my gear and getting stuff ready, but I, I just keep thinking, man, it's going to be hot if it's like this in deer season. And the, and the freaking mosquitoes, man. I, I got this one spot down the street from me where I go to practice my climbing methods, and it, it's in a, the edge of a marsh in a swamp, and it's just like a thousand mosquitoes swarm me every time I go down there. So I'm not looking forward to that. Hey, welcome to my life. I mean, that's yeah. how I hunt from September through, I'm going to say mid-November is before they really kind of go away. But, I mean, you were down here for Saddlepalooza last February. And, I mean, what was the weather like in February here in Savannah? Yeah, it was like mid-80s and sunny every day. <laughs> I know, and that's February. <laughs> So you can imagine what it's like here in September. Yeah. I mean, we, we get warm weather in September too. Um, this year, I think it's going to be particularly bad. Like I definitely always have to put up with the mosquitoes, but we've had so much rain. I, I, I don't know any of the, the numbers or the facts, but it's got to be like approaching record amounts of rain this summer. It, it's almost like every other day we have these storms coming through. Um, just last weekend, we had so much rain come down so quickly that my patio flooded into my sunroom. We had five inches of water in the sunroom, which then overflowed and started seeping into the house while I'm sleeping on the couch. Uh, so we had to rip up the carpet. So anyway, p- point being, we just had so much rain that there's so many mosquitoes hanging around. Yeah, that sucks. It really does. Um, I, I always hate that part about the early season here. It's you always run into like, ah, do I even want to go? I'm going to get all hot and sweaty and you know, it's frustrating, but then you have the itch to go, you know, you've been waiting for six months to get back out there. So it's a, it's a give and take down here in the South for sure. Yeah. But the season's open, so you got to get out. That's right. You got to do it. Um, man, we got a great, we got a great podcast tonight. We got drew from wild edge Inc the uh the manufacturers of the stepladder climbing system and we had a fantastic talk right yeah we had a great time um it was cool to get to talk to drew again i i uh, I got to meet him about a month ago when i was out in connecticut and uh we hit it off right away and we had a lot of fun so uh I had a lot of fun talking to him again and hope it's the uh, the first of many more. Yeah, Drew is a good dude. Uh, I'm a big fan of the stepladder system. And, well, before we blow it, let's just jump right into uh, the conversation we had with Drew. Andrew, it is good to have you on the line today. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, guys. How you How you doing? We're doing we're doing good. It's uh, what is today? August seventeenth. Uh, 
three weeks and one sleep until my bow season starts. Yeah, I'm about uh, about right at four weeks. Mine opens up September sometime right around the 15th, so I'm right around the corner as well. Yeah, that's about the same for us. Yeah, that's good, man. So, so for those of, for those listening, uh, they, most of them are going to know who you are because this is a saddle hunter heavy audience. And uh, but there's going to be some people that don't. So, Andrew, go ahead and give us a rundown of you know where you live, what you do for a living, and uh, that kind of stuff. All right, Andrew Walter. Everyone calls me Drew. Officially, I'm Andrew though. Um, yeah, I'm a owner and president of Wild Edge Incorporated. We uh, sell the stepladder and other climbing uh, systems. We've uh, we've been in business for three years now, and we I, the business has run out of, and I live in East Haddam, Connecticut, uh, Southern Connecticut, a mo- little more rural part of Connecticut. Um, everyone gives me shit saying we don't have deer here, but we actually do. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's uh, pretty much the gist of it. I'm a father of a awesome little one year old. His name's Bo, and uh, my wife's name's April. They're uh, they're both big part of this business, uh, family-run business, and uh, just doing what we can to make mobile hunting great again. There you go. I like it. Now I got a question for you. So the uh, you see stuff all the time on on the forum about people kind of pushing the envelope with. DIY projects and a lot of times they involve your product, the stepladder. How do you feel about that when you log on or when you see notes on social media about people taking your product and doing something, you know, that you didn't intend for it or, you know, tweaking it, doing a DIY project with it? How does that make you feel? Do you like it? Do you hate it? What do you think? Oh, I love it. I think it's I think it's awesome cuz you know, I'm I'm a guy I love I love making new stuff. I love inventing stuff. You know, just like any saddle hunter, I say every saddle hunter, if you're a serious saddle hunter, you customize everything. No saddle hunter hunts the same. So when I see guys making camera arms out of the steps and, you know, putting Amsteel blue on them and just doing, making platforms out of plywood that go into the step. And I've learned more from guys from Saddle Hunter Forum than I have like on my own. So I forget his name, but... I should know his name. I owe him a lot of credit. The guy that came up with the other way to make the loop for the stepladder. Joe. Yeah, I've been using these steps since I was 14. I grew up with the inventor, and you'd think we would have thought of that. But when he sh- when I saw that video, when Greg sent it to me, I was blown away. I was at a trade show. I was at Harrisburg when I got the video, and I tried it right there. And I must have demoed that loop that way a couple thousand times. So I love seeing guys, you know, doing different stuff and, it definitely motivates me to do other stuff, and I love it. Yeah, that was cool, Andrew. Uh, I remember when we met up in Connecticut. Uh, you had asked me why I, you know, why I didn't like greater, why why I didn't like, and I told you I didn't like putting on the step above my head, right? Right. That knot was a game changer for me because it made it so much easier to put the step on above my head, or at least that head level. I find myself now even using that that way to tie it more than the original way, especially when you have a long tail end. You know, if you're on a smaller tree with a lot of extra rope hanging around, it's so much easier and quicker. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember that day when I saw the video and I said, oh man, that's a game changer. And I immediately sent it to Drew and and uh, I knew you'd get a kick out of it. Yeah, that and the, the nader. So that that other guy that made that way with the aider on your knee and on your foot that you also did a video for. Yeah, that was uh, the Pete that came up with the Nader and then Swamp Sniper that we credit with the Swader, which is basically just the the long uh, hip length Aider that he figured out, you know, you should just cinch it around your foot. Yeah, that's so awesome. I love it. It's so cool. You, I can get to 20 feet with four steps. Yeah, no, it's 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 crazy. So definitely the answer to your question is it's that's the coolest part is when you see guys actually using their own brain and, you know, engineering something different. That's so cool to me. I agree. I love, I love seeing new stuff, especially when it's my own product. It's like, you know, it's like, I don't think I ever could have thought of that my on my own, but it's just cool to see guys doing that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the most fun parts about the forum to me is just seeing the, the stuff that people come up with. Yeah. And it's all serious guys that, you know, like I, I joke, they're the, they're the gear nuts of the saddle hunting industry. And, Everyone's trying to climb a tree with toothpicks and dental floss, but I have learned more from that forum than 
anything on the internet. Well, that's me. I'm I'm definitely guilty of that because yeah. to me that's part of the fun. Part of the fun is, you know, you only get to hunt for two or three months out of the year and then the rest of the year I'm like, well, you know, geez, I can only fish so much and I want to mess around with my hunting gear and so finding ways to make it easier, lighter, faster, stronger, more user-friendly. It's just super fun. And uh, I think a lot of innovation comes out of that. Yeah, it's that. And it's also, I tell guys, you know, the reason we saddle hunt, the reason we're always tweaking our gear and customizing everything is because you don't want your effort to be put into climbing the tree and doing your setup. You want your effort to be in the hunt. So the second you're trying to mess with, you know, tree stands and climbing sticks and any method that involves, you know, doing a lot of work you're not focusing mm-hmm. on hunting yeah the let the more energy you burn climbing the tree and doing all that stuff is the left uh, mental energy you have to put into watching deer and right being prepared so it's like early season yeah you're all you're you're ready to get out you're all amped up and you'll put more energy into it but it comes down to later season when you're burnt out well that's when simplicity comes big Simplicity and efficiency is right. the, the two things that I really look for when I'm when I'm testing a new idea or trying to tweak something. I'm I'm like you, Drew. I want it to be as simple, as idiot proof, and as efficient as possible. Yeah, simple and brainless. So if it's dark, you should not have to think. All right, I have a 550 cord tied to my right boot with my second climbing stick, and you know it, it shouldn't. You shouldn't have to think. It should just be one one continuous motion of the second you start your climb you'd never have to come back down you get up and you're done so and ultimately i mean this is going to sound pretty basic but how i judge a climbing method is can i do it in a hunting situation because i have a lot of different ways i can climb a tree i can go out in my backyard and for me personally i can srt up up and down a tree over and over and it's a lot of fun to do it mm-hmm. i just struggle doing it with uh when i'm in the woods hunting it, it in the early season i mean it's sweating too much or then in the later season i got too many clothes on and, and it's just it, it doesn't work for me and there's guys out there doing it and it works and um like like you said before that's the cool thing about saddle hunting is everybody does something different right and that's you know the my biggest question i get all the time is you know how high can i climb with a set of eight set of ten set of twelve how high can i climb I said well it's there's so many variables there. It's such a unique, customized product that I can't give you an answer. You know, I, I'm a monkey, so I could I could jump three feet to the next step, four feet. I could do a pull-up, or I could use an aider. Um, I could use a new method of the aider that Greg showed us. You know, there's, there's a million different ways, so it's so hard to... Everyone wants an answer of how you can do something, how long it takes, how much it weighs. They, they want, like, an exact timeline of how it works, and really, that's the fun part about it is figuring out yourself. So what works for you? I agree. You know, I mean, what works for one doesn't work for the other, you know? Exactly. And that's why we tinker with this stuff all year. Cause if you figure this stuff out in the spring, you have all summer to practice it and be able to do it when you go hunting. And, and you right. find this topic coming up over and over again with saddle hunting, not just necessarily as, as it relates to climbing methods, but I mean, it relates to how we do our tethers, how we, use what platform we want to use do you want to use a wild edge platform do you want to use a ring of steps do you want to use like a predator style platform or a pivot style platform there's like a thousand different ways you can do every little part of our setups and it's so much fun to tinker around with all of it yeah i relate the you know your saddle hunting method just like you said everything you just said it's like saying what kind of underwear do you wear do you wear boxers do you wear briefs i mean it's so so personal so custom you know, I like a shorter bridge. Some guys like a long bridge. You know, I can't tell you what's right or what's wrong. It's whatever's comfortable comfortable for you. It's like buying a pair of boots. Yeah, that's why, like, one thing that gets me is when, like, people are talking about this stuff in absolutes. Like, there there is no absolutes. You got you to gotta go out. You have to test what works for you because what I like may not be what you like. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, Scott at the BHA event, Connecticut. <laughs> Greg, Scott pulls up, opens his trunk, and he's got every <laughs> climbing method you could ever imagine. Like, I'm going to set up my two trees. I'm like, oh, my God, who's got all this stuff? It's like, it's got to be Scott. It took me he's an hour to set up. It. You name it, he has it, and he's showing how to climb. He blew my mind. But that's that's part of the fun, like I said, for me. I mean, I have 
stuff in my garage, probably like both of you do as well, but I've got a bunch of stuff that I've bought and accumulated over the years that I've never used in the woods, but I like to play around with it. Right. I have a pile of stuff because sometimes an idea will come or you'll see something for inspiration and then something in that pile you can use to make something else. It's like we're all three of us are we're we're inventors and we like to customize everything. So it's so hard to sell things. You just want to keep everything. You kind of become a hoarder. So it's like I I posted a picture of all my like half of my tree stands. I still have the other half in the woods. I still have to take down. And it's like guys are offering to buy them. They want to buy my lone wolf climber, but I really, you know, what's it worth? 150 bucks. It's used. It's old. I don't really want to sell it because there's memories with it. And there's, I might be able to do something with it one day. You might be able to do something with the parts. That's right. I had, um, when, when, the, the all the Nader posts started happening, I was like, oh crap, I have one of those hooks that I have bought just for a rainy day. <laughs> I mean, I have yep. a 25 pound API Grand Slam Summit that's been hanging on the wall in my garage for, oh, 10 years and it's been with me from Florida to Georgia to Colorado to New York. And I just can't bring myself to sell it for exactly what you said, Andrew, or is, I don't know when I'm going to want to use it. And I probably never will, but you know, I just, what happens on that day when I need it and I don't have it. That, and it's the memories. It's the, you know, it's a personal piece of you. All, all my old lock on tree stands. That's the way my dad, my uncle grew up hunting is out of lock on tree stands, all of them. So I have a pile of them and it's like, I don't want to get rid of them because that's that's just straight up memories of I killed so many deer out of those stands. And then my father killed deer out of them. My uncle killed deer out of them. It's just a cool piece to keep, you know, hold on to. On that same note, that just jogs my memories. Um, it's, it's still heartbreaking to think about. But when I was a kid growing up, uh, most of the time when I started, we hunted out of all these different uh, permanent wooden stands we had built into the tree. And then like later on in my... Uh, older childhood we started using portable lock-ons but um at one point maybe probably this point like 15 or 20 years ago a big portion of that land that we hunted on got um traded from uh, state land to county land and the county went through and chopped all of those tree stands down and it was just like a little heartbreaking to walk out to those trees it's still land that you can hunt on just via a county permit but to walk out to those trees like the tree i shot my first deer out of my old stand that I was in is laying there on the ground next to it, rotting. Mm. Yeah. Speak, speaking of memories and, and stuff, I, I'm kind of curious about how way back in the day, Drew, if you could talk about how Jim Step came up with all this stuff and the stepladder. I've never heard the story of the invention. I know that he was a vet and that he, uh, I know he suffered an injury and that was part of how it happened, but could you maybe just tell us kind of the history of the stepladder? Because I know you're not the the first person to to deal with them. So how how did that all come about? Yeah, it's a it's, it's a wicked cool story. So Jim and I are both vets. Um, we both served in the army. Jim, so take it back. I forget what year it was. 2013, I think. I was 13 years old. 2012. It was a long time ago. My dad and I, I was a junior instructor for uh, the bow hunter safety course. So my dad was a senior instructor. So I would always come and help out. I was always known around the town as the, the little killer. I would kill a lot. Of, we have uh, unlimited doe tags a year. So, you know, I would kill 15, 20 deer a year. So, you know, the sports club was a cool way to grow up. Um, we were there giving the course. I was doing, you know, a section on how to call deer or something. Just a kid, you know, loving everything. And Jim was actually there taking the course with his buddy Don. And Jim, they, they're from Maine. So basically Connecticut made a new rule where if you got a license before this date, you had to retake the course. So they were retaking the course. They'd come down from Maine to hunt Connecticut because we had a lot more deer than Maine, obviously. So, you know, we started talking to Jim and Don and Jim took me to his van and showed me the steps. And he basically said, he's like, you know, he saw my dad doing a section on private land hunting, how you needed a consent form. And my dad pulled out, you know, a wad of private land consent forms. And uh, Jim got all excited. He came over, he said, hey, you know, I'll trade you some steps if you can get us, 
some private land permission slips. So we said, yeah, that sounds great. Um, you know, back in the day, I was using everything from anything I get my hands on to climb a tree. I was using it, whether it was limbs or screwing pegs, climbing sticks, you name it, I, anything I could do. Um, so then Jim and Don became family friends to us. They'd come down every year, you know, multiple times a year, you know, a month, two months, whatever it was. And uh, we became really close. Um, always hunted together, killed a lot of deer together. Um, they'd kill a deer. I'd go in, help them drag it butcher it you know we we just became really good close family friends and then um always hunted together when i got out of the army i was traveling the world killing deer for a living as a sharpshooter uh suburban deer management and i kind of got tired of uh the hotel life and traveling you know i was gone for eight nine months a year uh, living in a hotel with a couple guys so i wanted something closer to home jim said hey the steps are here take it and run so that's when I started the business, but Jim invented the steps. He was a Vietnam vet. He got his, he lost his leg in Vietnam and he was an inventor his whole life, a welder fabricator. So he, in his garage, in his welding shop, found a way that he could climb a tree with a prosthetic leg. So the whole idea was to have a way to climb where two feet were always standing on a step and he could bring his good leg up one at a time. So he couldn't climb alternate steps because his good leg had to reach a step and then bring his bad leg up. So that's how it started. He sold the steps uh, through L.L. Bean back in the day, um, you know, before the internet. And then um, once I took it over, we actually brought the steps to the internet and we've been selling them since and Jim and I still hunt together. Um, he comes down every fall and he's like a dad to me. I mean, the guy, he helped me invent the aider. He, He's just, he's in the shop all the time. He's just a guy that can, he sees something and he can invent it. And he can, you know, he's just been an inventor his whole life. And I credit my entire business and everything the Wild Edge is right now to Jim. Why is it that you think it never really kind of took off? Because it was, it was before e-commerce, before the internet. I mean, you had, picture a two-dimensional ad in the LLB magazine. You know, people see that. If you see a two-dimensional picture, you may like, what in the world is that? But when they went to L.O. Bean or if they saw Jim at a trade show and they saw it work, then it makes sense. That's the biggest thing. You know, you see in Bowhunter Magazine the picture of the step. It doesn't make sense until you see a video of the step actually camming over and working or you see, see it at a trade show. So the guys will walk up and be like, oh, that's cool. And then they'll grab onto it and they'll be like, whoa, you know, that's solid. And then they'll watch me cam it over then they'll cam it over themselves and then they get intimidated they're like well that knot looks complicated well it's really not it's right there on the bag if you ever forget and this is how you do it and then they're like you know they basically do a 180 and then they see okay this makes sense so it's it's not something that you can see and believe in a two-dimensional image and that was the thing back in the day before the internet before videos and everything it's it's hard to understand that's a similar story to the saddle i mean a lot of people would look at the idea and number one, they'd think you're crazy. But once you get like that visual feedback, then it becomes a, a practical idea to people. It's identical. So same thing at trade shows when I'm, you know, same thing with the steps to a saddle. They look at the steps and go, oh, no, it can't be, it can't be that strong. Then they actually see it and they grab it. Okay. It's solid. They see a saddle. Oh, first question. That can't be comfortable. Well, mm -hmm. No, it is. So then they sit in it. You know, I take it off me and I have them sit in it and they climb up the pole and then they look at you and their whole demeanor changes. That's the first, you guys know, so that's the mm -hmm. first question anyone asks. Well, can you sit in it all day? How is that comfortable? That can't be comfortable. Mm -hmm. Is it comfortable? Well, yeah. Obviously, if it wasn't comfortable, I wouldn't hunt out of it. Yeah, I, I've mm -hmm. never understood that. You get that all the time on social media. People will... You know, someone will post a picture. Hey, check out my new saddle setup for this year. I'm pumped. And then someone says, "Blah, that you, that's stupid. You can't hunt out of that. It would, it would never work." And I'm thinking, bro, there are literally thousands of people hunting this way. What do you think they just all are right. just lying <laughs> that they hate it secretly, but they come on Facebook and post that they love it? It makes no sense. Right. It's that as the first thing anyone ever thinks. No, I can't be comfortable. No, 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 no. I can't. No, no. But it's like. No, it, it is. And like I was talking to Scott and when he was up in Connecticut, 
And uh, you know, a lot of people ask, can you hunt all day in it? It's like, well, I know a lot of people that do, but I can't sit all day. So I couldn't tell you. If <laughs> Andrew I can, can't sit all day. It's not day, because... but Scott it's sits not... all day. So you ask him. Andrew can't sit all day. It's not because of the saddle. It's because of his attention span. Exactly. <laughs> I can't sit. It's hard for me to sit in this chair right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've said it on the forum many times. I mean, before I had a kid, I was hunting at least 10 days a year all day between the rut and then gun season. And uh, now I'll do it just whenever I can get away for a day. It's, it's As you know now, Andrew, it's a lot tougher once you have a kid, huh? Oh, life definitely changes. It's awesome being a dad, but yeah, I got I have to take my son to daycare every morning. So, yeah, the uh, the same thing for me. La- last um, November during the rut, when I had my time off, I'm dropping my daughter off at daycare and then going over, and my all day sits suddenly become okay. Start in at in the tree at eight or eight thirty sits. Yeah, um, no, it, it's definitely a game changer. I mean, but it's all worth it because someday she'll be sitting in the tree with me. Exactly. No, and then it's uh. You know, I used to kill a lot of deer a year, but then it's like, you know, if I have the time and I'm hunting in the afternoon, it's, all right, if I shoot this doe, then that means I have to field dress her. I have to drag her out or butcher in the field. And then that means I'm not getting home till nine o'clock at night. That means I don't see my son before he goes to bed. Yep. Let's talk about tactics a little bit, Drew. I mean, I've heard you talk on multiple pod- podcasts about you like to hunt a lot of islands and peninsulas and you do a lot of water access. Uh, I'm a super huge fan of that style of hunting. So uh, talk me through how you go about hunting, you know, starting the early season and how you progress through the rut in the late season and some of your favorite tactics. Yeah. So when I was, uh, when I was younger, it was, it was always easy to get private land access. My dad was actually the mayor of the town. So, you know, he knew everyone. I grew up in the town. I knew everyone. And, some of our best properties came about where people were, you know, hey, can you come to our house and kill some deer? Like, they're just destroying our gardens. They're destroying our landscape, everything. Like, absolutely, I'll be there. I'll be there tomorrow. So we'd go and we'd kill a lot of deer. So we had so much private land. And then, you know, as I got older, I got tired of hunting, you know, one-acre pieces, five-acre pieces. It's just like when I'm hunting, I want to kind of be, I want to be out there and, you know, away, away from people, you know, I don't want someone starting up the truck to ruin my hunt. So I got, you know, I narrowed down to a couple of private land pieces that I have, you know, some of the best hunting in the town and I'm so appreciative to it. I take care of landowners. I donate a ton of meat to soup kitchens and churches and, you know, I'm always doing free labor for landowners. Um, but the reason I really started breaking off and whatever you want to call it, mobile hunting, run and gun, hang and bang, is when I realized that after I got out of college, when I was home from the army, I was hunting a lot more. So I was over hunting a lot of my private land pieces. And that's so obvious. You can see in the trail camera data and basically the visuals on deer, you, you know, you see less and less deer every time you're hunting and you know, you're over hunting them, but you keep hunting them and you keep paying attention to those trail cameras like they're God and trail cameras really they made me a worse hunter because I paid so much attention to them and I believed them. You know, you believe a deer walks in front of the camera at that time. You believe that's when he comes there, but really he could be within 40 yards for two hours. But long short story short, um, you know, five, six years ago, I started really looking at topo maps. So it's so easy, you know, on hunt stand or Onyx maps, Google earth to really look at, you know, where are these deer going? Where are they hiding? Where do people not, get to these deer so then that brought me to we live right on connect on the connecticut river the salmon river so i started breaking out and just scouting and hunting peninsulas islands and basically i looked on the maps of a lot of public land i said where is someone not going to be ambitious enough to go you know where's 99 percent of guys not going to be able not going to put the effort into hunting and once i started doing that and accessing my kayak and by my boat, it was a complete game changer. And I saw more deer. I saw more mature deer. And I killed more deer. I actually killed more mature deer in those public land pieces accessing by water um, than I have on private land. I mean, I've been spoiled with really good private land. But, you know, once I started accessing by kayak, and that's what got me really into saddle hunting because 
you know, I'd go to these pieces, these big public land pieces, you know, we're talking 5,000 acres, 1,000 acres, 500 acre island. You get there and I was hunting on the ground. I've been using the steps since I was 14, but to me, before I was saddle hunting, I'd go to these places. It's like I was just hunting the ground because what am I going to do? Walk into this island, set up steps and bring a tree stand on my kayak. And then if I shoot a deer, I have to pack out a tree stand steps and a and the kayak and the deer i mean it just didn't make sense so that's when everything started evolving into mobile hunting and basically the idea of mobile hunting was i needed to get at least 10 feet higher than the vegetation because it's such nasty scrub reeds frag grass and just it, the second you get 10 feet you have more shot opportunity if you're hunting on the ground you can only see five feet in front of you so you know that's kind of the gist of how i started breaking out and hunting these public land pieces basically looking at the map and going okay someone is not going to put the effort into paddling a kayak hopping out in their waders with a saddle around them with a set of with a climbing system walking in climbing and hunting so once i started doing that you know everything changed and that allowed me to give my private land pieces a break and only hunt them when i should be hunting them so instead of hunting a stand 15 times a season i was now hunting that stand two or three times a season and you know my shot opportunities and my success drastically increased well everybody knows in the hunting world that you know i like to always say first sit best sit and that's why i think this idea of of mobile hunting run and gun hang and bang like you said <clears throat> i think that's why it's gotten really popular lately because people are starting to realize that you can't over hunt if you hope to shoot a mature deer you're just you can't go to the same spot over and over again and think that you know old mossy horns is going to hang out he's gotten to be old mossy horns by not hanging out so you know as soon as you enter into that mature buck's bedroom and he knows you're there, he's going to alter his patterns. Um, you know, if you have pressured deer, now if you're hunting on a farm in Iowa that nobody ever, nobody ever messes with the deer, you can probably get away with it. But you know, for John Q average hunter, we're not in that situation. So, uh, I'm a big fan of that. And, and I'm Greg, I'm going to interrupt you for a second to bring up another point. Cause you always talk about how hanging in a saddle is so much fun. I think hunting a new spot every time is so much fun. It's like that extra excitement of the unknown every time you're in a new spot. You never know if that monster buck is is there and just about to walk out. I completely agree. And and the kayak adds a whole nother level of adventure to it. I didn't start hunting from a kayak until Uncle Sam brought me down here to Georgia and I'm surrounded by swamps. I mean, Savannah is essentially a, a giant swamp that people have piled up some dirt and built some buildings. It's just nothing but a swamp here. So anytime you want to hunt, uh, if you have a kayak, man, you can access places that nobody ever goes. And so I've just had a blast doing that. And it's so much fun, like you said, Scott, because you never know what's around that next little slough. And I love it. It's so much fun. Well, that's the thing. It's like, you know, hunting it, hunting to me is an escape as it is to you guys. And it's a, it's a way to, I don't know, it's just in our blood. You know, it's like hashtag it's in our blood, but it, it really is. I mean, it's, it's so personal that. When I go hunting, I don't really want to be in someone's backyard. You know, I, I want to I want to get away. So the second you're paddling down the river and it's, you know, pitch dark, it's four in the morning and you're paddling, there's just something about that with your bow strapped to the front and all your gear on the back. And then you access, you're just so stealthily quiet and it's, it's just something else. It's, it's so cool to be able to access somewhere by water that you have no central on the way in. And it's like, you know, when I access by kayak, once I access that spot, I'm not walking that far. I may, I may be paddling, you know, quarter mile, half mile, mile at the most. But by the end of it, once I get to the land, I'm only walking 10 feet, you know, 20 yards, hundred yards at the most. So it's like, and then once you kill a deer, well, it's so thick in there. Like literally you have to machete a trail in before the season that once you kill a deer, you know, you're not in there to, you know, blast does because there's just no way to get them out. So you have to actually quarter that deer, put them in garbage bags, in your backpack, take them out. And then 
you know, your kayak is way overrated for its weight and you're paddling back. There's just something <laughs> about it that's really cool. That's what really got me hooked on it. It's it's different. You feel like you're, you know, elk hunting in Idaho. I, I'm a, I'm agreeing. I agree with you 100%. It's like a little mini adventure every time I get in my kayak. And that has, that has turned into one of my favorite ways to hunt is just to load up in the boat. And, you know, most of the times I pick out somewhere on the map and, you know, I'll, I like to hunt kind of my favorite places to hunt out of the boat are, are a little peninsula or an oxbow in the river. And I like to get in the neck. So I'll find a narrow neck, you know, you got to just imagine a, a peninsula created by the river. And then if I have a neck that's, uh, you know, 50 to a hundred yards wide, that's my favorite spot. I'll just pick one of those based on wind direction, paddle to it. And, you know, I'm just like you drew, I, I don't go far. I mean, when I'm prepping these spots, some in the preseason, I'll be just like you. Sometimes like the water is right there. Like I could jump out of my saddle and jump into the river if I wanted to. I'm so close to the river's edge. It's, right. And that's what you, people don't, people forget that deer swim. I mean, they're amazing swimmers. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's what really got me is when I started looking into hunting public land and I was looking at my properties that were, you know, they're only a quarter mile from the river and I'm looking at, you know, the deer movement and my trail cameras. And then I literally parked at one of my private land pieces and just walked and I followed deer trails and they led me right to the river. And I'm talking not a Creek, not a stream. It was, you know, it's a good 150 yards from where the deer, tra deer trail ended to the peninsula. So then I went back, grabbed my kayak and I went and I found the trail that led from the other trail and I got onto the peninsula and it was the most deer sign I'd ever seen in my life. Like it was insane. So that's when, you know, a lot of people forget what deer do. So deer don't want to be interrupted by human contact. You know, there's deer that definitely live in suburban environments and they're used to, um, human inter interaction but there's a difference between a human interaction and a hunter interaction and that's oh they that's they the know thing. they know there's when this... someone's trying to kill them and they know when someone's just taking a walk there's there's um my so my dad lives in sub a suburban area and they got all sorts of deer around now and um he has a corn pile out in the back and he's got a um a, a um a camera not not like hooked up to his to his computer so he can watch deer live every night when they come in to eat. A couple of years ago, there was this fawn that came in and the fawn got so comfortable with him. My dad could stand six feet from it and put the corn out in front of it. And it would just stand there and he would talk to it. And it was like they were friends. But as soon as he did something out of the ordinary, that deer would bounce off. Yeah. So it, it knew the difference between normal, he's not a threat, and then something's different. Like if I showed up, that deer wouldn't come near that's the thing in uh in east in our land zone we can bait deer on private land so you can bait them with corn whatever you want you can bait them um so that's the thing so many guys think oh you can bait them it's so easy you kill all your big deer over bait you dump a 50 pound bag of corn and you know deer just piling in there to eat well that's not the thing nope. now, there's a reason i hunt public land <clears throat> i see more big deer on public land than i do on my private land pieces where i can bait because the second you bait, put a camera up and broadcast that you're there, the deer understand. So the only big deer I've killed coming to bait, I was at least 50 to 100 yards away from bait, cutting them off. Unless it was the first week of the season and you're doing it right. So that's a whole other misconception about baiting is, you know, everyone thinks if you dump a pile of corn that, you know, it's basically a gimme. But, you know, it's, it, it's a whole different world because the deer the deer know what's going on. They absolutely do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll do. I do some baiting for our doe management because we have you know a certain number of does I have to shoot, and just to make the most of my time in the woods. And you watch the deer, and like it, you know, the young ones aren't as knowledgeable, we'll say. But you watch an old doe coming into a bait pile, and she, she's as skittish as uh, any deer you've ever seen. Yeah, the old does. That's what people don't understand. They're like, ah, oh, well, I, you know, I, I blew a. A, a doe blew at me and she ran away, but I'm safe. It wasn't the buck. Well, no, that every deer in that environment understands what every other deer is communicating to them. So if that doe blew and ran away, well, the mature buck that you're hunting understands what happened. And he's mm -hmm. going to watch the younger, 
more subordinate deer making their changes and moving differently. And he's going to understand that, you know, that bait pile and that camera is bad juju. Yeah. I mean, I agree a hundred percent. I grew up hunting bait in, in Florida and pretty much that's how everyone hunts. You set up a feeder at the beginning of the year. And what, what we found is that those first few hunts over those feeders, after you've been feeding them all summer long, you've got a really good shot at getting a buck because they're coming in, they're conditioned, they're not being molested, they're, you know, they've got it to themselves. It's just, there's no human interference except for people coming in once every three weeks to, to refill the corn. I mean, I think they hear it, you know, they hear the corn being dumped into the feeder and they know exactly what that means. And then nobody ever bothers them. But after that, you've hunted it once or twice it's like all the buck pictures go away and then it's just young, young deer and, and does. Yep. And all your nighttime, all your pictures are nighttime. So it's, I, the only time I hunt over bait is the first two weeks and the last two weeks of the season. So the first, you know, September 15th to the end of September and then the end of January. That's the only time because you're not going to catch a mature deer over bait, mature deer. I mean, whether it's a hundred inch a point or a, you know, a six and a half year old doe, you're not going to catch them over bait after the first two weeks, after sitting it two or three times the first or the last yeah. couple weeks. So it's, you know, they, they pick up on it and they understand it. So then the tactic becomes, you know, do you keep feeding them or do you try to cut them off and find their bed? So that's where public land hunting really started to interest me because I was then getting back to my you know, instinctual, normal ways of hunting where it's like really understanding deer movement instead of dumping a pile of corn, whether you're baiting every single day and making them ritual coming to bait at the same time and they're hungry and they're ready to come to bait. And it's like, you know, you, from the way that, you know, we worked when I was killing deer for a living, it's, you know, you proportionalize the amount of corn you're giving to the, to the amount of deer that you have in that area. So, it's kind of a rush to get there. Well, once you, if you're sitting there and you're basically waiting for one deer, your chances diminish greatly. So the more you sit it, the more you're hurting yourself. So that's why I started hunting public land. Then it's like you read all the things and you watch all the videos about finding the buck bed. And, you know, I, I always understood that, but at the same time, then I really started paying attention to it. And you look at the topographical maps and you say, okay, if I was a buck, where would I bed? Where am I so far away from, you know, humans? It's a public land piece. People are walking these trails every single day. Where am I going to, if I was a deer, where would I hide? Where even if they were walking by me at 20, 30 yards, they would never see me or never know I was there. And then you pay attention to the wind and the thermals and everything. And like you go to a piece of woods and you look on the map, it's like, if I was a buck, I'd bed there. And it's like, yeah, there's not going to be a bed there. You actually go there. And it blows your mind. You're like, okay, there's a there's a bed there. I mean, the only time I scout is in the rain because your scent's washed away after you're done scouting. And if you jump a big deer, well, that bed's going to be dry and you're going to know that that deer was bedded right there. So it's a, you know, it's a whole evolution of rethinking the way I started hunting. I, I just want to step back for a minute and tell Greg how much I love talking to someone else from, from the Northeast here, Andrew. I love that you just mentioned a mature deer at a hundred inches yep. because the my three biggest deer on the wall are all about a hundred inches and they're all old deer. But, uh, no, that's the thing. It's like, it's, I would love to pick up my whole family, my business, you know, everybody, every 40 members of the family move them out West because I would have the time of my life hunting out there, but I'm here because all my connections are here. My business is here. And, this is where I like. Sorry. Yeah, I love it. I love being here, but people don't appreciate a hundred inch deer, you know, or a hundred and thirty inch deer. Like around here, same with same with you, Scott. If you kill a hundred and thirty inch, hundred and fifty inch deer in New England, you're doing something right. If you kill multiple, you're really doing something right. So that's like in, it's so underappreciated that it kind of sickens yep. you. But in um in two thousand and eleven, I was just the first time that my dad and I had been in the same tree since probably when I was a youth and he had to be in the tree with me. And I had tagged out the week before I had this tree 
uh, it was during the rut and I was seeing all sorts of bucks and we went to this other spot and there actually ended up being a guy where we were thinking about going. So I was like, dad, you know what? Like, let's go to this tree and, um, you know what? I'll hang up in my saddle above you. We'll put a stand up and we'll see what happens. The buck comes out, you shoot it and I'll shoot a doe. We were up there for a half hour and the biggest buck that either one of us has seen in the woods walked out and he shot it. And it was number one, the, one of the coolest memories I ever have for my dad to shoot his biggest deer in his life while we were together. But that deer scored 158 and an eighth and it's blows away any deer. Like most of his deer were around a hundred inches. That was in deer. New Jersey. In New Jersey. It was at one point it was the number four crossbow deer in New Jersey. It's, it's been bumped down, I think out of the top 10 at this point, but um, yeah, that's, a, and, that's an absolute giant. Yeah. It's a, it's a monster. Like I honestly, I look at a deer around between probably 120, 100 and 120 inches as a monster to me for, for around here. But um, he, he shot another good one last year. It probably was probably around 132. So um, I guess, well, now he's retired. He has a little bit more time to hunt. So that well, that's all the thing. It's like, you know, everyone's all about passing deer. And if, if you shoot a three and a half year old deer that scores 100 inches, people give you shit. But it's like where we hunt. There's, yes, I passed deer and I started, you know, the last 10 years of my life, I started passing deer. So when I was younger and I was a savage, I killed everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd kill, I'd limit out on my two buck tags, whether it was a spike or a four point or a button buck, whatever it was, I'd limit out. Then I'd kill my three does and get my earn a buck tag. But then I started passing deer up because... You know, I'd rather kill a mature doe because she's going to blow up my spot and wait for a bigger buck. But in our areas, you know, Scott, you and I are hunting, what, a 10-acre piece is a big piece. A 50-acre piece is big. A 100-acre piece is massive. So for a deer to walk through a 100-acre piece and then get shot by another hunter is nothing. You know, we're talking mm-hmm. no distance at all, a couple hundred yards. Yeah. So. That's like, you know, you pass up deer, so, you know, if you shoot a 140-inch deer on your piece, you're doing something, you're doing something right. So, you know, it's it's all about how to access that property, how to do it right so that that big deer that's living there, you, you mess up once and he's on the other, he's on the other property that you cannot hunt. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, I'm, I hunt all state and county land, a hundred percent public land. I've hunted on, um, I've private land, like maybe 10 times in my life. So I, I mean, I look for bigger private uh, public pieces to hunt because I can go more places on them, but there's just with, uh, there, there's definitely some big deer in New Jersey. Like every year people are killing Pope and young deer. That's for sure. But I, um, my goal at this point is just to shoot mature deer. And I, I'm really starting to get a kick out of shooting big body deer like the um right the, the past two years my bucks have been close to 100 uh, 200 pounds dressed and the last year my buck he probably was only 85 inches but he's he's almost 200 pounds like that's an old deer right and it's like a three and a half year old deer that scores over 100 inches that's a good deer i don't okay, oh yeah. yeah you could have passed him and then the next year he could have been a four and a half year old and he could have been you know he could have grown 10 inches and been 20 more pounds but where we're hunting you mess up once he's on the neighbor's property and then he gets shot so it's not like Mm -hmm. we're out west where you can you know really sit back and watch deer and target every deer if you in new england if you if you have a deer that you've had on on camera for two years consecutive and then you kill him that's a big deal three years that's a huge deal so if you, Absolutely. you know, Drew, do you ever go, uh, into the Midwest and, and do any out of state hunts or are you pretty much only hunting right there in new England? I'm only new England this year. Um, our family has a cabin in Pennsylvania, um, that we haven't been to in years. I grew up hunting there, but when we went there, it was, you know, basically just filling the freezer. That's the way I grew up. Uh, you go out for rifle season, Drew? Nope. That was archery. So we were in the Northwest corner of Pennsylvania, Warren County. Um, but once my uncle died, we kind of stopped going there. Um, but it's, 
we've been working on trying to get back there. But this year I'm actually going to Idaho with a couple buddies and we're doing our first elk hunt of our lives. So this will be, this is, this will be really cool. So, you know, trying to tweak our setups and actually do something different. But to answer your question, no, I have, you know, Connecticut is basically where I grew up hunting and where I've hunted. When I went to school in uh, Maine, I did a lot of hunting up there, killed a couple of does and expanded our tree zone in Southern Maine, but never a nice buck. Real quick, just to, to wrap up that uh, antler size topic, then I don't want to to um to drag it on i just wanted to bring that up for a lot of new hunters because you know i think a lot of people getting into the sport have unrealistic expectations based off of what they see on tv so to to talk to you about that andrew is refreshing to me and i hope uh, this is one of the reasons that i like uh, our saddle hunter community and trying to like to me get back to the roots of hunting and promote how it really is for a lot of people like go out there hunting either public or in your case private land that like we're not shooting pope and young deer every every time we're we're out there and videoing like we're you got to be realistic for where you are well that's the thing it's like i it, it crushes me to see like the tv shows where you know that some guys you know whether he's out west wherever he is in the world he's taking his son hunting for the first time and he's telling him to pass up this deer pass up that deer you know wait for a mature deer the only way you're going to learn how to hunt and how to kill deer is by killing deer yep. so how can you learn how to kill a five and a half six and a half year old deer if the first deer you ever kill is a three and a half four and a half year old deer you have to just kill deer so do whatever makes yep. you happy if a two my, and a half my, year old four point makes you happy then kill it like this one when i take my sister hunting you know, her, her first deer was a little four point and then her second deer was a seven point. And then her third deer was a doe, fourth deer was a doe, 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 doe. And then she finally looked at me and she's like, I'm ready to kill a big buck. I said, okay. You know, basically the rule was, you know, I, I was passing up deer on the, on all the properties we were hunting, but then she mentioned to me that she wanted to kill a big deer. I said, okay, well, you're going to have to stop killing little deer. So she stopped killing little deer. She was passing them up. And two years consecutive, she killed two nice seven points that maybe scored 60, 70 inches. But she was so happy. Like that made her hunt. Absolutely. And the, and that gets lost a lot too. It, it's all about having fun. Exactly. I mean, shoot what makes you happy. That's what I tell everyone. It's like everyone that comes. So I'm. You know, I'm known to, I'm known as the guide around here. So it's like you come to my property, if you haven't killed a deer or you, you've only killed a couple deer, shoot whatever makes you happy. You know, if a four point makes you happy and you want to kill it, kill it. There's plenty of four points running around. Um you know, we're not Iowa, we're not managing for, you know, two hundred inch deer. So that's the biggest problem with the whole industry is you watch a TV show and two hundred inch deer become yeah. normal. So when you see mm -hmm. someone kill a 100, 100 inch deer, 120 inch deer, it's like, ah, that's nothing epic. But really, it's all it comes down to whatever that's makes right. a hunter happy. Because how many how many TV shows do you see, uh, see filmed in New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, yeah, Maine, right? None. <laughs> well, let's switch gears here for just a moment and talk about, uh, before we wrap this up, let's talk about why uh, people should check out the Wild Edge Stepladder. Give us uh, give us the top couple reasons, Drew, of, of what you're hearing from customers and from your experience. And then I'll talk about my experience as well. But what, uh, what uh, things should people look for as far as benefits from the wild edge uh, stepladder system well it's basically um it's a versatile climbing system so you know if you're a run and gun mobile hunter and you want to cut your weight and use the least amount of steps to climb as high as you can we have many options for that with the aider and the run and gun package um if you're you know a lot of our customers are older guys in their 60s to 70s that want to be able to climb a tree and put the steps as close as they can because they have a knee or hip injury. So, you know, it goes from the extreme of using an aider to the extreme of guys that want to put the steps, you know, a foot apart um, to women who want to, you know, have a nice climb and put their steps foot, foot and a half apart. So it's a, it's a very versatile system where you can put the steps as far apart as you want or as close as you want. If you're climbing the tree, you start at the bottom, 
if you're a tree stand hunter, saddle hunter, you basically don't have to worry about where you start your climb. You start your climb anywhere. As you get up, you can uncan the step, slide it over, and now you're on the other side of the tree. So it's a basically a very versatile system that you can do whatever you want. So my buddy said this saying that as corny as it sounds, it's design your own climb. Design your climb. If you want to put your steps three feet apart, you do that. If you want to put them six feet apart and use an aider, then you do that. If you want to put them a foot apart and have a comfortable climb, that's what you do. So it's a very versatile product that can go from climbing and then transform into your saddle hunting platform. So it's a, you know, it's very lightweight, compact. We sell sets of 5, 8, 10, 12, or 16. And you can also go on our website and customize your own set if you want 8-foot ropes, 6-foot ropes. If you want uh, 12 steps in a 16 bag, you can have whatever you want. So it's uh, basically versatility is our goal, whatever you want to do. I tell you, I've been messing around with them this summer and messing around with the Aider and, you know, the Nader Suader that we kind of talked about earlier. And I am definitely adding the wild steps uh the wild edge steps into into my climbing arsenal this year no questions asked when you when you start adding an aider to it so you can get you know 20 plus feet with only a handful of steps i mean that's a serious game changer so the system i'm going to use this year is five uh wild edge steps with a nader suader and that's going to get me as high as i ever need to hunt 25 foot pretty easily and that's only five pounds so for five pounds i can get essentially as high as i could ever need to get and i mean what does it take to put one of these things on 15 seconds i mean like we talked about in the beginning with that new knot which you've got links uh, or you've got videos on your channel uh, on your youtube channel drew on the wild edge channel and then i've got videos on my g2 outdoors channel showing the showing the loop system and that's a freaking game changer. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I had steps uh, uh, in the year in years gone by, and the knot wasn't. I mean, it wasn't bad. It was just kind of one of those things where if you weren't really familiar with it, it it might take you a second or two to get used to it. But the loop thing is so easy and fast and kind of idiot proof. Uh, yeah, I love well, it. That was the thing, Greg. That was the thing in the past is when you had to do that knot and you got to do it twelve times then it starts to add up and be like, well, do I want to do this? But now you add in number one, the new knot, and it just makes everything easier. And then um, I've been saying this all the time. And I, I just say this to people don't give up on the wild edge steps because there is a learning curve, but it's, it's worth it. You, you need to just practice with them and get comfortable. That's what I tell and so many customers. You're not going to open it up out of the package and be an expert. You know, you have to practice. So, you know, put them on your, put them on the trees in your backyard, you know, practice a little bit, do your setup in the backyard, shoot a target. You know, it's well, the thing is, is it doesn't take much. I mean, if you spent 10 right. minutes in the backyard, just tying the, tying the step on there five times, you're essentially going to be, you know, 90% there. And it's that and create, yeah. you know, understanding the tension. So it's, yep. you know, it, is it too tight? So you loosen it up a little bit. Is it, not tight enough so you pull a little slack out so that rope you can you can really just pull and push and make that tension right and feeling when it's going to cam over so you know you have to practice if you're going to mobile hunt you have to practice a little bit to be able to understand you know when you're climbing in the dark to when you know when that step is going to cam over and it's going to be solid so when i'm mobile hunting i'm going to i'm not as worried about how tight that step is going to be you know i'm just going to cam it over if it's tight it's tight if it's a little loose that's fine i'm just climbing but sets that i'm setting to stay all season i will wrench them over and get them so tight that they're not going to move at all so you know it's like you said it's a little bit of a learning curve but at the end once you get it i mean a monkey can do it in the dark it's just repetition it's like shooting your bow everyone you know oh well that not i don't know if i can remember it well how often do you shoot your bow? Do you remember how to shoot your bow? Do you remember proper form? How often do you practice? It's the same same concept. Yep. Same thing with um, like soft bark trees. You just have to learn. Sometimes it's going to come into there really good and you might have to tweak that knot to make sure it fits in there tight. Scott, you hit the nail on the head. Don't give up. You know, if you, when you get a set, 
just try it for 10 minutes. Go in the backyard, like Drew said, tie it on a few times, figure out your system. And I promise you, you're going to like the steps eventually. I mean, I'm a big fan of them now. Like I said, they are definitely going into my arsenal this year. I hunt with uh, climbing spurs a lot, but that's only, you know, when it's legal. They're, they're illegal in most of the places I hunt. So uh, I'm going to I'm gonna put the sticks away, the, the muddy sticks and the lone wolf sticks, put those away this year and default to the wild edge uh, step ladder just because I've gotten so comfortable with it this summer that um, – that it's just, I think it's a no brainer. You know, it, it's so personal. I mean, if, like you said, on private land, you're probably going to use climbing spikes. So, you know, that's what you use, but on public land, uh, you know, our, our biggest customers are guys hunting public land. So, you know, you can't harm the tree. You can't break into the Cam- Cambrian layer of the tree. So you're going to use the steps. So it's, you know, it, it's so versatile, you know, whether you're hunting private land or public land, and whether you want to spread the steps four feet, six feet with the use of an aider, or you want to spread them a foot apart and, you know, have it as a comfortable climb. So when I'm setting up stands on private land where I know other guys are going to hunt, whether it's Jim Step or my sister or my dad um, or my uncle, my cousin, you know, it's I set those stands up so they're very comfortable to climb. And you have, you know, the the reason people get, excited about the steps is especially women they can grab onto that step in multiple multiple spots so you can grab onto the pick end the v spot on the end and you can grab onto the top there's so many places you can grab and feel comfortable that you're holding onto it while attached with a lineman line so it's you know you feel comfortable climbing instead of climbing alternate steps where you're searching for that screw and peg you're searching for that next step so when I set steps, everything's in a ladder. Everything's straight, straight and straight and straight ahead of you. So you're never searching for that step. You don't need a headlamp. So you're just you're just climbing. You know, some guys put them alternate, but to me, I like to know that my next handhold and my next step is going to be right in front of me. All right, Drew. Well, thank you for uh, coming on and describing all of that about the the system. I mean, you know, I I love the system. As you know, I used it. Like I think at least 90 plus percent of my hunts last year. And uh, just the more I use it, the more I get comfortable with it. So I hope we can get some some more of our members using it. And I hear that there... that you're going to do something for us to help get some new new people in um, in your wild edge step system. Yeah, I love you guys on the Saddle Hunter Forum. I learned so much from you. So, you know, I'll give a 10% discount to anyone on the Saddle Hunter Forum or anyone who listens to this podcast. Um, we'll do a Saddle Hunter, Saddle Hunter as a promo code, and that'll give you 10% off um, the running gun package on our website. All right, to, just to confirm, that was Saddle Hunter, one word, all lowercase, right? Exactly. Excellent. That's 10%, awesome. 10% off the run and gun package or 10% off anything you want to buy. That's awesome, man. That's very generous. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank for you. That. Yeah. I might have to hop on and stock up on some new stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, hey, man, we've kept you long enough. Uh, any uh, Any parting words to the Saddle Hunter Nation before we let you go? And then also... Make sure you tell us how we can find you. Are you on Facebook? Are you on Instagram? What's your website? Give us all those details and give us any parting thoughts. No, I I appreciate all the love from Saddle Hunter Forum. I learned a lot from you guys. And uh, just glad to work with Tether Nation. And uh, if you guys want to search us, you can look for us on YouTube at Wild Edge Inc. Facebook at Wild Edge Inc. Our Facebook is Stepladder by Wild Edge Inc. And uh, Instagram, Wild Edge Inc. And uh, if you have any questions, concerns, get, feel free to shoot us an email. Give us a call. We'll be glad to answer any questions you have. That's awesome, man. Well, all you people listening, Saddle Nation, you need to go check out Wild Edge. The stepladder is awesome. His other products are awesome. And Drew is a good dude. He's a veteran, veteran-owned business, and he's part of the Saddle Nation. So we definitely need to support him. Man, we certainly appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no, I appreciate you guys having me on. All right, Drew, I want to thank you again for coming on and talking about your stepladder system, about your company, about all things uh, saddle related. Um, I know that we didn't get to everything that we want to talk about this time, so uh, we'll definitely have to have you on at some point in the future. 
What do you think about that, Greg? Yep, we need to have him back on. And uh, like I said, Drew's a good dude. I'm a big fan of the Stepladder system, and uh, I think it can make uh, make you guys. It can make Saddle Nation make us all better hunters. So, and I thought it was really cool how he decided to give all the listeners a discount. You know, they're using his coupon code Saddle Hunter at checkout on his website. That was awfully generous of him. So I I hope all of you guys go there and support Drew, support one of our own, and uh, pick up a set of steps letters from him yeah definitely that was that was awesome of him to do so um hope it can help out all the saddle hunters out there yep and uh and i guess when when you guys are listening to this it is going to be right before the season so hopefully your trail cameras are out there they're cooking they're getting pictures of those those bucks doing their last bit of summer growth on their antlers and man i hope you guys have a good season scott i hope you have a good season for sure same to you i mean we'll be back here uh podcasting in another month and you never know maybe maybe uh we'll have some some venison in the freezer and some new antlers to go up on the wall by then. that's right yep i agree and uh yeah man i think that's it i think we can probably let everybody go and get back to work or uh whatever it is saddle nation does when they're not thinking about saddle hunting and we will catch you guys on the next episode of the saddle hunter podcast (laughs) 